part two, let's do a podcast. act, not only in organized religion, but also in the most intimate moment of the soul, is culturally formed. In this way, Tillich assures us that culture and theology are not enemies, they're not opposed, but they're necessary dialogue partners. When I'm asked about which stories have had the deepest significance on me, my first thought is never a biblical narrative. In fact, the Bible mostly bored me as a child. What actually comes to mind is a treasure trove of science fiction and fantasy films I've consumed countless times over the course of my life. All about distant people and places whose unexceptionally human struggles, though separated from my own life by time, culture, and even whole galaxies, are eerily familiar to our own experiences. I think about Indiana Jones, a character who lays bare our obsession with immortality and the liberation inherent to casting aside material fixations. I think about Star Wars, a space gospel there to remind us that redemption is always a living possibility, no matter how far we may have fallen into darkness. These movies are more than passive entertainment intended to coddle and distract. They reflect transcultural anxieties and aspirations. They teach us, comfort us, and sometimes they even clarify a path towards salvation. On today's episode, I talk about pop culture, philosophy, religion, and the man himself, Paul Tillich, with my good friend and colleague, Reagan Hartman. We discuss Tillich's relevance to film analysis, how scholars might engage cinema as a tool in effectively articulating complex concepts in philosophy and theology, and most importantly, whether Rick Deckard is a human or a replicant. Reagan Hardman is a PhD student at Boston University researching the connection between film, pop culture, and theology. He's a fascinating individual with a timely and insightful message about the existential significance of film. I hope you all enjoy our conversation and be sure to follow up with us at Tillich Today about your own pop culture and philosophy hot takes. I know I have plenty of them. May the force, or rather, may the ground of being be with you. All right. Hello, Reagan Hardman. Welcome to Tillich today, soon to be the number one podcast in the world. We're going to get an so. invite on Rogan soon. Yeah, and then yeah. we're going to get canceled because we got an invite on Rogan. Uh, I've been waiting for it to happen. You know, if anyone's going to do it, it might as well be Rogan. We're, we're going to be talking about, you know, Paul Tillich and how to use Paul Tillich to make those extra gains on your body modification journey. Get those Amen. pump up those uh, muscles. <laughs> All right. So. 
Uh, welcome to the podcast. To get us started, why don't you tell us what led to your interest in Tillich and how he's come up in some of your own work? Yeah, the I was first exposed in a course uh, on atheism and radical theologies. So, of course, he came in at the very end as the radical theologian and the professor of that course clearly had a uh, an agenda at play for <laughs> for talking about Tillich. But I liked it. And uh, when I started the PhD, that was in my master's. When I started the PhD, one of the first courses I took was just all on Tillich, kind of life and work. We just went through the whole systematics. And yeah, I I was really into it. I had more questions and answers at the end of it, of course, because his uh, one semester isn't enough to, to understand Tillich. Uh, but I, I want to use him to understand more about theology for those who have no interest in theology or in religion or like traditional conceptions of God until like is a really one. Once you can distill it, he's actually pretty accessible, uh, which I, I think we'll see with, you know, Harrison Ford calling him out or shouting out to like in, in an interview. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but I, I took both of those classes as well, atheism and radical theology, and obviously the Tillich seminar. Yeah. It's funny, this is the fourth time. I'm assuming this class, one of them was taught by Professor Wesley Wildman. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that'd be the one. <laughs> yes, this is the fourth consecutive recording where Wesley <laughs> Wildman's name has been dropped. And I'm joking that it's soon to become Wesley today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this is happening, yeah. but um, and the you second time that, to you people, that's why. I know. I'm. I need to to branch out. Need to branch yeah. out. Start here. Uh, move on after that. Anyway, um, yeah. I took. I I also took that class. I don't know if we took it together. Maybe. Uh, I think we did actually. We were both in the the master's program together. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You were in that one. There, there might have been an agenda there. Just a slight one. I think so. But uh, yeah, you're right. Spending one semester on Tillich is never enough. And I sort of, you're right that you're also right that he's very accessible once you have a kind of grasp of the basic ideas. Although I'll never in my life trust someone who picks up a book, reads it one time, and, you know, very quickly and says, well, Tillich's easy. I'm like, okay. You know, (laughs) I don't know if I can say that. Whoops. (laughs) It's okay. I'll, uh, I'll bleep it out. Yeah, put it put a bleep in there. It's okay. We'll, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. This is an adult <laughs> show, right? And, and Tillich, I don't think there are many children listening to a podcast about Tillich. You know, if well, so, I'm, I kind of want to trying to start kid. them early, but <laughs> with all due respect, right? Tillich's yeah, life yeah. was not PG, so why should this show be PG? It sure wasn't. It sure wasn't. So, with that said, let's get into uh, the next question, which you've already raised. So recently. Within the last year, Harrison Ford, uh, who famously studied philosophy in college, mentioned uh, that Paul Tillich was one of his influences and one Mm -hmm. of the philosophical thinkers who had had a tremendous impact on his philosophical worldview and his religious worldview. So I worship Harrison Ford. He is part of the Holy Mm -hmm. Trinity of mine with Elton John and Nine Inch Nails. He can do no wrong. He is perfect. And he was a carpenter. So he's not actually that far removed from Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty close. But this has turned into the perfect opportunity to talk about Harrison Ford movies uh, Mm -hmm. in relation to Paul Tillich's theology. Two of my favorite all time Harrison Ford movies are obviously Blade Runner and Indiana Jones uh, and also Star Wars. It's right 
Han Solo, everyone wants, no one really wants to be Luke Skywalker. We want to have the power of Luke Skywalker, but we want to embody Han Solo. So say something about that in uh, relation to Tilly's philosophy in your own work. Yeah, I I gravitate to Blade Runner for sure. That's my far and above my favorite Harrison Ford movie. Um, I I love, I just like AI movies a lot. I think there's a lot philosophically and the- theologically to talk about with AI movies. Um, I mean, I wish in that I I read that interview that that Ford did where he talked about it, and I wish he had talked more like connected to his movies. Or like his approach to some of those characters more, but you know, obviously he's a kind of cagey in uh, in interviews, so he gives it like a pretty pretty short answer. But I, I think there, when I watch Blade Runner, if I think Tilikian through it, there there's something interesting going on with the relationship between the replicants and the humans, and I think like what's really at stake. It really comes up more. I'd say in 2049 than in the first one, what's really at stake is like, what does it mean to be human and who has like ultimate meaning um, or like whose purpose is, I guess, more grounded, more justified. And that like, that's interesting to think through a Talikian lens um, somewhere in a systematic, you, you'd probably remember which volume better than I do, but he has that kind of weird section about like alien theology or Tilly that's, says like, that's volume two. That's in this yeah, little yeah, yeah. paragraph at the end, Aaron, like just the middle comes of volume up two. Yeah. Out of nowhere, where it's like, uh, yeah, Paul, I guess you're right. Aliens would need their own Jesus. <laughs> and it doesn't re- it has kind of nothing to bear with what he's talking about before or after that paragraph. It's just there. He but just I'm into you it. With it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm down. So I do like thinking about would the replicants need their own Jesus? And if Harrison, if Deckard is a replicant, could he be their their Jesus? It has nothing to do with the actual film, but I like thinking about it, you know. I mean, I I actually think you're wrong. I think it is relevant to the film, especially as you said, like 2049, which is and this is going to be my hottest take of the day, possibly is the best sequel that has ever been made oh man i mean i was just expecting you to say it's better than blade runner and i think i'm down with that but the best sequel ever made in terms of like thematic continuity maintaining a kind of standalone like so as a sequel it could be a standalone film yeah, but it get, it provide it adds something new to the old film without needing to retcon anything, without needing to like totally destabilize something about the first film that was significant. Right, it's, right. and it's just a perfect movie. It is. Right? So it's like it's using uh, um, what is it IP uh, that already mm-hmm. exists, and yeah, is doing something brand new. It's not my favorite sequel. I just think it's the best sequel. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I can I can get uh, down. I don't know. Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back is is also ringing in my ear right now. Yeah, here's actually here's the hottest take I'm going to make for the day. We love Empire Strikes Back because we were all about eight years old when we watched it. (laughs) (laughs) I watched Blade Runner 2049 as a 25 year old and still think it's that good. No nostalgia attached to it. That's true. 
I didn't You're watch right. Blade Runner as an eight-year-old. I... You're right. Empire is very, very good. Probably one of the best twists in all oh, of yeah. cinematic uh, history. But enough of enough of that. Enough of those movie hot takes. Um, yeah, I do think in 2049, right? The whole uh, the whole saga with Kay searching for his identity and thinking that he's that chosen one, that he's almost that Christ figure, only for him to end up not being that person. But right. Like I think the significance is that they all need to imagine that there's that person out there, that this, there's some kind of salvific uh, example for them to follow. And Kay ends up yeah. dying on behalf of that, even though he's not particularly special. He's not the chosen one, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and yet that model of a figure of that very nature becomes essential to the replicants in their fight for freedom, justice. Right. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? I think, yeah. I do think that's a good a good lens. I agree with myself more than than I thought I did, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I'm also always wary of just, like, overlaying Christian themes onto pop culture. That's, like, not really what I'm trying to do. So you mm-hmm. go into a movie, and if you're just like, oh, where's the Christ figure? You're probably approaching, like, theology and, and film. Sorry, I'm going to wait for this. I have this automatic litter box. You're going to see ah. it rising in the in the background. And it's super noisy. So I'm going to give it a second. Okay, that's fine. Just so it doesn't ruin it. Oh, it's fine. Unplugged it. Yeah, and I can can edit this through or edit it out. Yeah. Cut it in a little bit. It's fine. I think you should leave it in. Maybe. I mean, it did. Why not? Why not? It gives a more organic feel. Yeah. To the pod beyond pod, as I'm calling it. I think Tillich would be proud of it. We're Tillich would want me to be things. myself. Yeah. Tillich would actually want you to be just yourself. So that little blurb in the beginning, he'd <laughs> say, hell yeah, Reagan. Uh-huh. I'm kind of surprised he doesn't cuss in his work more. I feel like he had a he had a mouth on him. You don't come out of the way. trenches of World War One and not have a mouth on you. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. You don't get down to some of the stuff he got down to and then keep at your Sunday best all the time. But yeah. uh, who knows? I happen to think I understand Tillich like, really better than anyone else, but <laughs> you know, that's just because in my head we're best friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I don't hear any litter box. Okay, that's good. It's super loud to me, but it's pretty much oh. done now. So I'll okay, yeah, I couldn't hear anything. So oh, sweet. The well, audience missed out on, a, some time. on a nice poop scraping. <laughs> it just sounds like a mechanical whir and like litter being tossed about. Uh, okay. But I yeah. see. So it sounds like if you were listening to a Carl Bart podcast. Yeah, exactly. I'm just joking. That podcast yeah. does exist and it's really good and people should listen to it. Anyway, uh, let's proceed with. Uh, you should this, have their this... you should have their host on sometime. Have a Bart versus Tillich debate. I know. Showdown. That would be really cage fun. Match. We should have a cage match. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Invite Joe Rogan called to AAR. commentary. <laughs> AR it is. <laughs> Uh, all right, so yeah, Christ figures, movies, pop culture, replicas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, like I'm never trying to just overlay it. So, obviously, some films it's it's just there. Um, I mean, even Star Wars, not necessarily Christian, but there's all kinds of like Eastern philosophies and and religious symbolism floating mm-hmm. around those. So it's easier to like identify them. But you know, it's interesting that in most of the films Harrison Ford has done, religion is like notably absent. There's no there's no like crosses in the background. You know, there's there's really no like 
this is the Messiah we're waiting for kind of thing. It's just like dudes doing things for the most part, which I'm all about. I, I enjoy watching it. But then it's fun to try to see like what is the theological element or like the the philosophy that's either undergirding the these characters or like competing philosophies that are driving the motive of the story. And like that's the fun thing to watch. But but in 2049, there is kind of that salvific question that's always up in the air. And I did kind of forget the there's something kind of like a virgin birth, I suppose, with two replicants having a child. There's it's not the same as a virgin birth, but there's something like equally miraculous happening in that. Yeah, I don't know what Tillich would think about that, though. Well, I mean, there's so there's a lot to pick apart in or not pick apart in a critical way, but just to talk about in what you just said. um, Although I will add, right, Indiana Jones is famously has no religion in it whatsoever, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, I'm joking. That is one of the outliers in Ford's like list of movies that he's done. And it's Indiana Jones is weird. Like Indiana Jones is the best or worst atheist in the world, depending on how you look at it, <laughs> right? Because after every movie, he sees God descend from the heavens to do some miraculous feat, and then his atheism just he resets. quite literally, yeah, he quite literally sees that the Ark of the Covenant is real. That this, this, <laughs> they've been right all along, and at the end, he's like, nah, no God. It's also the only. Uh, film series where every religion in the world is right on some level (laughs) (laughs) all the artifacts have something some kind of power in them yeah and then he just goes back to being an atheist he's like yeah i mean i did see this 1000 year old crusader that's somehow still alive in the cave holding the cup of jesus christ but like i don't believe in that supernatural stuff yeah yeah anyway but uh yeah you're right i think tillich well, I think this brings us into a conversation about Tillich's Christology in a way, because he tends to have a, or he has a kind of odd, oh, I don't want to say odd, he's got a, a very different approach to Jesus as this being, as the new being that we're yeah. talking about in, uh, similar to what we are looking at in the movie Blade Runner 2049, that there's a model, a moral model, but not just a moral exemplar, a figure that overcomes the existential impediments of life and finds a bit of reconciliation and wholeness and finds a way to to overcome what Tillich calls estrangement, which he Mm -hmm. notes as sin. Um, How how would you think about that in relation to the film? I think it's... Again, a really good lens. I it would be fun to see. I mean, I'm re- really glad he doesn't do it. Villeneuve doesn't like keep the movie going. I mean, it's almost a three hour movie as it is. But it would be fun to see like what happens after. You know, Deckard is reunited with his daughter. What what does that then mean? So there's like, I mean, Tillich is all about potentiality and trying to like overcome the barrier existential. I guess like barriers or blockades that keep you from that right ambiguity in his terms. Um, so the new being is kind of like, I don't know how to put it. Um, new being overcomes ambiguity, but it's never really concrete until like what that looks like or how that happens, which is kind of the same in, in 2049. There's that reunion. So like the potentiality for new being, but we don't know what it actually looks like you know, moving forward in that universe. So 
We yeah. need a third one. Blade Runner yeah. 2061, you know? <laughs> I, man, I'm scared of a third one because the second one was so, like, I think the ambiguous ending is so I do not want a third so one. Per- yeah, I, I, it's, it's too perfect, yeah. to, in my opinion. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Kay's sacrificial death at the end, Deckard's re, uh, reuniting with his daughter, the kind of possibility that something might move forward without the clarification that it actually mm-hmm. does happen. And you're right that that ambiguity, I mean, Tillich has a whole section on ambiguity in the in the thing that's the third volume of the systematic, although he talks about it in most of his work, that there's a very existential ambiguity to our choices. Right. Like we we have to have enough fidelity to make the choice without knowing that it's going to have an actual kind of yes. resolution that we want. But there's a kind of hope and a faith. And Tillich even talks about this in his political theology, that part of what's missing in like strains of Marxism is that hope and that faith mm-hmm. and that kind of um, eschatological vision for the future. Right, right. That comes up a lot in Courage to Be as well, that like the amb- the ambiguity is what you have to have courage against. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, as he says, it's the courage that, or it's the, and this is how he talks about faith in a more general sense, is that you have to have faith even though you know there could be emptiness at the end of that thing that you're seeking. Yeah. Like, and right. so in the case of the film, all of the replicants, I mean, their vision for the future could prove to be totally idolatrous, like just a sacred mm-hmm. cow that they were hoping for. And in some way, like, this is uh, apparent among the, I mean, although it's ambiguous, I think whether Deckard is a is a replicant, despite Ridley yeah. Scott's insistence that he is. Right, right. I'll never forgive Ridley Scott for that damn director's cut. Yeah, it's <laughs> he bad. killed the ambiguity. I know, I know. I love the final cut. It's still good. You you keep a little bit of it. Director's cut. Nah. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, in the book too, he's definitely a human. So that's the other right. the other piece of that. Um. But anyway, as, as I'm saying, like it, it even for the uh, unambiguously human characters, right? This mm-hmm. is an issue. I mean, what would it mean if their conception of what being a human is turns out to be wrong in the face of what these replicants are and can do? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess how do we how do we make room for that in a in a theological worldview? So, like, how do you you said you like movies with AI and 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 the theological implications sure. of that? How do you think about that? I've so. I've watched and written a good amount on the movie Her, mm-hmm. uh, which is my favorite AI movie. I because it's just like so kind of subversive in a lot of ways. Not only is it a rom com or rom com dramedy, but it it also features AI so significantly without ever giving them a body or a face. They're just an earpiece. So like we we know that they're present in the film just because of like tricky camera shots where you know Joaquin Phoenix's ear is facing the camera but it it plays with that idea of like <clears throat> what is really the difference between humans and AI that's a tricky question when you when they both have bodies especially in something like Blade Runner where they're at least at first glance indistinguishable but her really takes all of that away and they're so different and yet the character of this AI is so rounded and feels so real without ever actually being on screen. And I think like my conclusion to that movie, um, I guess I'll drop a spoiler alert at the Oh yeah, spoilers for her. For 
They, if you uh, haven't seen this movie that's been out just, for 10 years or, or so. Yeah, you really have just been slacking. You know, stop listening to this podcast. Go turn it on. Well, I'm hold, sure it's streaming hold, hold somewhere. Hold on now. Hold on now. They got plenty of time <laughs> after the podcast ends. That's true. But if they don't want the spoiler, pause it oh, right now. That's true. Okay. Spoilers. Right, here's the ending. So there, <laughs> the whole, like, the whole movie, he kind of develops this relationship with his operating system, with his AI. And towards the end, kind of when the relationship starts to break down is when the AI operating systems start communicating with each other. And they realize that their like being, their ontological status so supersedes humanity that they have to go like retreat into a new realm that they've created for themselves and exist only together. So that leaves all the humans alone just with other humans. And the the final shot of the film is is really gorgeous. Uh, it's Joaquin Phoenix's character goes to Amy Adams character's apartment and they go up to the roof and just look over at the skyline. It's like kind of an ambiguous city, but it's future L.A. basically. And they just look at the skyline together and then the movie ends. And my kind of thesis for what I think that movie is about is that humans are as I guess kind of lame as it sounds like humans are meant for each other. So like that kind of deep love that is felt in human relationships can't really be replicated in AI relationships, AI human relationships. There's something like so fundamentally distinct about them as an ontological category that that separates them in ways that just like really can't be reconciled, even though they're they're useful. And clearly he learns something about love, learns more about himself from the relationship with his AI, but it's it ultimately breaks down, right? It's ultimately falls just short of what is is integral to human human relationships. But then I saw this movie called The Creator that came out this year. Have you seen it yet? Oh, not yet. Not it yet. Rocks. I want to. I highly recommend and it flies right in the face of what I believe about her. So now I'm like really caught in the tension <laughs> between these two positions. Um that movie is about uh, AI development has has happened to such an extent that they are also pretty in indistinguishable from humans. They have all the same capacities, except when you look at them, it's very clear that they are not humans. They're clearly robots. Uh, but a nuclear war goes off, a uh, nuclear bomb drops in L.A., and the humans blame it on AI. They think that the AI were always plotting against humans to begin with. And so now there's this war in the West between humans and AI. Uh, and that's kind of that's that's the basic story to to go too much into it would really be a spoiler. But the end of the movie challenges this idea that humans and AI are really that different. Um, it kind of collapses that that ontological status. So I'm still processing it and I, I don't know where to land yet through it. But that's what I think. Film is like just such a powerful medium. It's why I work with it so much. Is that it, it can bring these? It it takes a fantasy world, or it takes a, a world that's so distinctly unique from ours that seems unimaginable right now, but gives us ways of thinking about the current reality, our current situation, in ways that never would have been possible without it. Um, and we can bring philosophy to it. We can bring theology to it. We can bring all these deep concerns and questions and interact with our world in, in a really unique, powerful way. 
Yeah, no, that seems absolutely true. And me and JJ Warren were uh, very recently talking about this with the power of narrative within Christianity, but, you know, mm-hmm. outside of Christianity, the use of myth in religion broadly, most right religions have this aspect. And then also like Tillich's incorporation of symbols or his emphasis on symbols yes. as pointing beyond themselves, right? In his definition, right. a sign is different than a symbol because a sign does not point to anything beyond itself. But a symbol mm-hmm. speaks to some reality that transcends what you're looking at, like concretely in the moment yeah, or what yeah. you're symbols, giving. And it, right. And it's something like participate in the thing they're pointing yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. The participation is the key, right? So it's like mm-hmm. the American flag participates in something other than just flagness. Like it, it speaks right. to a whole history, a whole culture, a whole like set of values, uh, Christian symbols, exactly. the same thing. And I think you're right that like movies do that for us as well, um, that mm-hmm. they participate in something beyond themselves, some reality. And it's I think what's interesting about it and what is interesting in Tillich's sense of what a symbol can do is that, you know, we inherit the symbols to a certain extent. So like, you know, you said earlier, you don't want to transplant Christian, you know, themes on the movies, which I agree 100% with that. Um, I'll never get over the fact that Superman is always depicted by Zack Snyder as this messiah figure. Yeah, yeah, he was created by two Jewish comic writers. (laughs) So it's just... Yeah, I, there was another PhD student at BU who like gave a presentation on exactly this kind of absurdity. There, there's a scene, I think it's in Man of Steel, where he Superman's like falling, kind of, almost defeated, and he has like his arms stretched out, you know, legs straight down, very clearly across. It's like Zach, Zach, come on, man. Although, admittedly, I, I actually, that's the only Superman movie I I like. You can at me. I mean, it's not bad. You I, know. I get it. It's I think it's the only movie where Superman has a, a, a moral complexity outside of the Justice League cartoon series. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, you know, he just snaps uh, General Zod's neck. He's like, no. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, obviously, Superman would. I don't know. I guess he does do that in the con. I don't know. I'm not a Superman person. I'm I've really only read Red Dawn. I don't think yeah. I've ever read any other Superman comics or graphics. Uh, but I'm but getting off track on all my nerd stuff. But anyway, back <laughs> to the point, right? Um, we can't just manufacture symbols for ourselves. Like it's something right, we right. inherit and it's something that we're all participating in. Even after the initial beliefs attached to some of those symbols have yeah. been erased or have been kind of replaced by some other new set of beliefs. So I think like this is also the beauty in in the dynamism of Tillich's theology is he's saying, well, yeah, you don't have to believe that God is this omnipotent agential being mm-hmm. up in the sky who looks over you, but you still carry that concept of God. It's still powerful and it's still doing something for you. And the same thing with Jesus Christ for Tillich, yeah. right? Like Christ is still something a, a figure that is ultimately important and that can speak to our situation and, and the same right. with other christian you know themes and concepts so i don't know i mean i'm of the perspective that like a lot of films a lot of people especially western films western media even if they're not being explicit like our culture is pretty saturated in theological oh, language yeah. Tillich points to this too in theology of culture so mm-hmm. um actually on that note, I do want to say, or I do want to move on to another question about one of the pieces you wrote recently. Uh, so you wrote an article connecting Tillich and I think the courage to be 
with the movie yeah. Everything Everywhere All at Once, which was the best movie of what it came out in 2022, 23. Yeah, 22. Whenever one. it came out, it was yeah. the best movie of that year. Yeah. Like, Admittedly, I didn't see that many other movies, but I know it was I saw the best. a lot. And you're you're dead on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you wrote about that. So it, tell us about the Telekian themes you identified in the movie. And maybe for people who haven't seen it without spoilers, uh, give a rundown of the movie. Oh, how could you spoil that movie? It's the most unspoilable movie of all time. That's part of the genius of it. That's true. Um, basically, it's about it's a multiverse movie that subverts all the themes of multiversal movies. And really at the heart of it, it's a it's a story about like immigrant identity and family dynamics in a new in a new environment, in a new place. Um, and does that through hot dog fingers and sex toys and it, all these really absurd things. But at, at its heart, it's, it's just about raccoons and like, chefs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's ratatouille, but it's a raccoon. The best joke I think I've ever seen in a movie. Raccoon. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, really like at its, at its heart, it's about exactly what Tillich is writing about in, in the courage to be. So one of the, the main characters uh, the daughter in this family. She, by the end, it's very, or not even at the end, I take that back. Um, I guess you could say one of her multiversal identities is kind of out to bring everything into a state of non-being, to say it in, in Tolikian terms. She she's trying to just kind of collapse all being into into nothingness, into non-being, because nothing really matters. And the mom is trying to show in like really kind of broken ways throughout the beginning of the movie that like this is wrong, that this is a war that needs to be fought. We need to we need to stop this from happening. But the end of the movie, they kind of both come to a conclusion together that actually, yeah, nothing really matters. But through that, really, we learn that everything matters, hence the everything everywhere. Uh, at least that's my argument. And I, I, it's just for anyone who's read The Courage to Be, the connections are already pretty clear that in that book, Tillich is trying to say that we have to overcome. We've already kind of hit on this in the conversation, but we have to overcome an existential threat, existential non-being and have the courage to say yes in the face of non-being. And that is precisely what's happening throughout the movie, even though Tillich never talks about sex toys and raccoons and and hot dog fingers. But yeah, it's it's too fun. I could talk about it for way too long, but I'll I'll keep it short. No, I we could spend a whole podcast series talking about that movie. Finally, we get the multi like I love Marvel, but other than into the Spider-Verse, I'm just over the multiverse. I'm over it. I'm done with it. I'm, yeah, done, with, I'm really... done with the DC multiverse. And mm -hmm. finally, we got a movie that did it right, I yep. think. Yeah, yeah, totally. Marvel really, they had all the chances and, and ruined every single one. All of them. All of them. Although, uh, Tobey Maguire finally came back. And for that, I'm forever grateful. He that yeah, poked that mean, nostalgia button just, just ever so right, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was, it was screaming in the theater. Not that his movies were good, but... <gasps> It was fun oh. watching. No, 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 not Toby McGuire. Andrew oh. Garfield. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we. I was, was going to do some blasphemy for a second. Yeah. 
No, yeah. I mean, the, the Amazing Spider-Man movies are just objectively not good. But it was really fun to watch Andrew Garfield stand there with with the other Spider-Men. But even still, like as as a movie, it doesn't really do multiverse that well. It's just the same characters coming into a different universe. And that's what's really fun about Everything Everywhere is that these are all the same people, but the characters are like wildly different in each universe. Yeah, that's that's right. They all have their own distinct personalities, but enough of a resemblance to, you know, the the original characters that you meet. Yeah. Um, and it, I think, like, it also points to the notion of possibility in Tillich's work and of the kind of essence existence distinction where mm-hmm. it, part of existence is the, uh, like, the distortion of what could be. And that's something that the characters each struggle with, right? They see all these versions of themselves. Uh, well, at least two of the characters do, right? They see these versions of themselves in other realities living a better life or actualizing something they wish could have been the case. And it does something, I think, tremendously devastating to them and causes, you know, an immense amount of suffering. And it goes to the heart of Tillich's existentialism, which is often ignored, but he is an existential philosopher. And part of existential philosophy is the idea that we are our choices and and very little else, right? This is a a very Sartrean Mm -hmm. understanding of that. But like you're your choice. And your choices kind of define who you are. Now, Tillich doesn't stick to this um, essence is existence kind of thing that Sartre does. But at the same time, he knows the anxiety that that causes, right? Like, I think everyone has experienced this too, especially as you're young. I mean, it's something as simple as where do I go to college? Well, where I go to college uh, will mean that I have to do this afterward. And if I do this for too long, then I can't do this other thing. And then slowly, you know, you're running out of time and finitude is creeping and the threat that you will one day run out of the opportunity to make new choices. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's overwhelming. And I think, yeah, Tillich just does a very good job of expressing a way to overcome that sense of cosmic futility through right. Christian symbols. Yeah, it's it's like an avenue that isn't provided by like Sartre or Camus. They kind of stop at the dread. And in some ways, I have an affinity for that. I think it's there's something powerful ab- about that. But like only if you're bringing hope implicitly. And what Tillich does is bring hope explicitly. He actually provides a way out that it's not totally escaping it, right? If if you read The Courage to Be and think that having courage just gets you out of the existential situation of our time or, or of your life or the dread and anxiety altogether, you, you kind of miss the point. That's not at all what Tillich is up to. It's It's living in it and through it in a way that still has hope. Uh, that still has something of value, something to uh, yeah, I don't have the word for it now, but yeah, it's it's still hopeful. It's still something that's not just nausea, you know, yeah, it's I think what it does is it does someone like Nietzsche justice. So like Nietzsche, you know, yes, is often yeah. seen as the father of existential thought. Nietzsche and uh, Kierkegaard are often seen as these two looming figures in uh, that prefigure the existential movements of the 20th century. And like what Nietzsche wants is something that is very life affirming, that affirms life to the fullest possibility, right? That you can live into a new way of being that is ecstatic mm-hmm. and exuberant and um, 
uh, a fool of something novel without living into what he thinks of as illusory comforts. So he thinks Christianity is an illusion. He thinks yeah. he he's such a smart ass that at one point he's like, yeah, philosophy went wrong with Plato. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he thinks Plato is the beginning of this illusion of some otherworldly comfort that we can right, right. escape to. And I think the existentialists broadly all try to do this. They don't want to be nihilistic. And Camus even says something to the extent of like hope kills uh, the realistic perspective we need to yeah. face the vicissitudes of existence. Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. But, but Tillich, you know, he he is said to have carried around the, uh, a copy of one of Nietzsche's books while he was on the Western Front uh, in World War One as mm -hmm. a German chaplain in the army. Um, I think Tillich really lives into this. Let's not deny how brutal reality is, right? Let's not deny the fact that sometimes all you want to do is just not exist anymore. Yeah. But let's find a way through that and out of that um, to a certain extent without needing to negate that it's there, right? And that's what courage, I think you're right. That's exactly what courage is because mm -hmm. you don't need courage if you don't have anything to bear. Right. Yeah. And he, and, yeah, he, go on. In, like in existence as we know it there's that's always going to be the case you're never going to live a life without the need for courage or without you know wanting it life is always marked by ambiguity he says a lot in his writing and so what do you do with that it's either you you succumb you do you take the sart route you take the camu route or you have courage through it or or you move somehow even when it feels impossible, even when it may not even feel worthwhile. And I, again, this is like exactly what everything everywhere is all about. The ending is not just like the movie never says, no, everything matters. It actually finishes with you're right. Nothing matters, but you don't actually believe that by the end of the movie. Right. It's like nothing matters to such an extent that in fact, everything matters. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, and that's Tillich uh, in a nutshell as well. Mm -hmm. And that's existentialism as well. That's existentialism that like, yeah, things, nothing has absolute value in this God-given sense, right? But that yeah. doesn't mean that it's utterly meaningless because as in Martin Heidegger says this too, that we are meaning making machines. Like right, right, right. we just pour meaning onto the world. So to say yeah. that nothing means anything, and this is, I think, a, a misconception about existentialism. Mm -hmm. Although, and the Sartreans are rolling furiously in their chairs. If any of them are listening, sure like, are. you don't, you don't get, you don't get him, <laughs> man. You don't understand. But I think Tillich rightly pointed out that the explicitly secular existentialists. Um, Oh, there's a kitty. I see. Yeah, there's my cat. Sorry. That the uh, the explicitly secular existentialists had no sense of how we could be saved from our condition. Uh, they had no no account of salvation, and that was the issue. And for Tillich, you don't need to go to heaven to find salvation. Yeah. So, all right, I running out of time a little bit, but this has been a really good conversation. So yeah, yeah. I'm going to try to try to move us forward. Um, so maybe. Let's let's just move on to book recommend. Well, actually, I, I do want you to say just real quick, uh, talk about your own work and, and why you think pop culture analysis is helpful to theologians and non-theologians alike. Mm -hmm. I think 
I guess just to like connect some threads of what I've already said, um, you know, like I said, I think film is powerful uh, along with a lot of other mediums, literature, music, uh, you know, any art forms. They're they're powerful in trying to grasp something about reality, something that we hold valuable or true or even sacred about about life and trying to capture that in in an engaging um creative way and i i i guess part of my like personal academic project is trying to get people out of the the trappings of like traditional secularism that we can kind of i would call overconfident belief that we can separate religion and culture in any meaningful way I definitely follow Tillich more that, as he famously says, religion's the substance of culture, culture the form of religion, um, that it's our ultimate concerns are expressed everywhere. So trying to point point to that, you know, find the symbols in, in pop culture, regardless of really what your religious identity is, that there's still something fundamentally religious, especially in that Tillichian understanding of it. Uh, that's that's always happening. That your ultimate concern is always can always be. Um, I don't know if I want to say it like this, but I, I guess I will. It can always be expressed in something in pop culture. So whatever you're drawn to, whatever you find, you know, as they say, deep in in culture. Uh, you watch a movie and it's like, man, that was really that was really profound. That was really deep. You probably think that because it's expressing something that you've that you hold close to you that that is something of your ultimate concern and uh, like realizing that highlighting those those areas um or you know just even drawing attention to it i think is is valuable and worthwhile to try to combat this idea that there's i don't think anything is just pure entertainment you know i think i think it's always expressing there's something something more going on. So I think we're better as people, as as a society, when we can understand that and like work out of that. Yeah, I I really love that analysis and particularly because like I think in pop culture study, or at least in the current discussion of pop culture, a lot of times you'll find like a, there's a lot of Marxist analysis that goes on and I, I'm sympathetic to some of it, but oftentimes, you know, they, they conflate anything that serves capitalism as like yeah. devoid of a soul or yeah, yeah. as somehow meaningless because it's only for the purposes of a profit. And I think Tillich, someone like Tillich helps us see, well, yeah, there's that element of like the profit drive, like Mar the Marvel cinematic universe, for instance, is Perfect. it's there to make money. And yet when I saw Captain America, like summon T'Challa and the rest of the Avengers yep. from the grave, and they just start appearing on screen. Something like I had a deeply religious experience yes. in that yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. So I appreciate the work you're doing, and and I'm looking forward to more of it. Uh, so lastly, do you have any book recommendations for listeners brand new to Tillich, and any book recommendations for people interested in pop culture and theology? For Tillich, um, I mean, uh, The Courage to Be is the best starting point if you're trying to understand Tillich. If you really want to understand his life, which I think is critical to understanding his work, um, his biography 
which I'm forgetting the name of. It's on my shelf back there somewhere. But it, it's it's really good. Um, uh, you could drop the name of it. Yeah, I, it's the it's the Palk the Palk book. Yeah, is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah, there there's yeah. several biographies. The the Palk one is the most famous, and then there's also Hannah Tillich, his wife, wrote a kind of notorious yeah yeah biography. I haven't read that one actually, but I think that, that one's from time to time. I think yes. is the name of it. Uh, but yeah, I'll drop the the name of the Palk book. I think I think it's really it's an easy read. It kind of reads like narrative nonfiction. You know, it it does a really good job as well of not shying away from the kind of problematic sides of Tillich's life. You know, there are things you really have to to rat- wrestle with, <clears throat> as is true of most Christian theologians that have been deemed worthy of our attention. There, you know, there's always the skeletons in the closet that we ought not ignore. And that one does a good job of of laying those out in a really, I think, respectable way, responsible way. Uh, so that'd be my Mike Tillich book recommendations, uh, though I think there's a lot of great books that pick up on Tillich, but too long a list to, to bring up. Uh, for theology and pop culture, um, again, just so too many. I mean, obviously, an upcoming edited volume on Daredevil and faith in. in hey, who's ed- editing that book? Uh, some losers, I think. Some losers <laughs> named Taylor Thomas and Reagan. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that one's going to be a lot of fun. There's there's a good book for for religion or for religion and film. It's called um, Shoot. Hang on. Bang. I got to get this right. Where is it? He's searching, folks. That's the silence you hear. Is a man on the mission. I want to get it right. That's the academic in you. You got to get it right. Ah, there it is. Sing a deep focus or deep cuts, and that's definitely not it. It's called Deep Focus, ah. filming theology and dialogue. Um, it's got three three authors: Robert Johnston, Craig Detweiler, and Cutter Calloway. But I think it does a really good job of approaching religion, theology, and film that resists that kind of just like locating the Christ figure, locating the creation stories kind of kind of thing. Even though sometimes it is there like I said, but also there, there are other ways of doing it. And it's also pretty recent. So there's good recent films that people would be familiar with and definitely have seen. There's a really great chapter talking about the movie, get out mm-hmm. theological mm-hmm. perspective. So I would definitely recommend that if, if you're into film and theology. Nice. Excellent. Uh, recommendations. I, again, I think it, I always think it's funny, like the, the, uh, Authors and filmmakers who are more subtle in their theology and those who are very explicit, like the difference between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Tolkien is just very, he's kind of, you know, you can see that there's some Christianity in there, but it's very subtle. It's very light. You have to read into it. Meanwhile, C.S. Lewis, his (laughs) writing, I feel like he sat there as he was writing and thought to himself, 
if my audience doesn't understand that this line is Jesus, I will light myself on fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I will say, he was very clear that he was writing it for children, and children aren't great at allegory, you know? <laughs> so I will give I will give him that. But yeah. You're right. A, and and Tolkien's Tolkien's work is kind of an extended uh, foray into PTSD and World yeah. War One. So <laughs> yeah, it's totally yeah. You know, Frodo literally is like at the end of the series is like, all right, I've had enough. I have to go to the <laughs> land where there's just the land of the elves. Yeah. Yeah. Or something. I don't know. I'm not a Lord of the Rings person. Don't ask me about dragons. I do science fiction. <laughs> But uh, okay, well, this has been excellent. And again, as Reagan mentioned, we are editing a book called uh, what, is, what did we name it? Faith and Faith and Morality. Faith, Morality, and the Man Without Fear. That's the name. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, religion wow. and philosophy in Daredevil. So uh, that's going to be coming out in 2025. There's going to be a lot of good chapters in there. It's with a Fortress Academic and Lexington Press their pop culture and theology series so uh look out for that and uh, we'll be including a chapter we don't know what we're writing about yet but it's going to be excellent so yeah just it'll be the best one it'll be the best chapter i think (laughs) hands down so keep on watch for that and look out for some of reagan's material um the christian century that's where your article is published right it didn't it didn't get published there i'm uh reworking it to try to publish it elsewhere Oh, okay, well, we'll keep you updated on where that paper is published because yeah, it's very good. Okay, well, this has been uh, Tillich today, and we will see you. Reagan, are you ready for this? We will see you Tillich tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care. Signing that. off. Thank yeah, you. thank you very much. <laughs>